Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of GTI Insights, the Global Taiwan Institute's policy podcast. My name is Marshall Reed, and I'm a research assistant here at GTI. And I'm Daniel Anaporian, a research intern at GTI. And today we're really so excited to be joined by Dr. Karis Templeman, who's a research fellow at the Hoover Institution at Stanford. At Hoover, he also serves as the program manager for the project on Taiwan and the Indo-Pacific region which does really great work in supporting research and public dialogue about Taiwan's democracy and society, as well as the increasingly pivotal position that Taiwan occupies in the Indo-Pacific region. Through his work, Dr. Templeman has conducted really fascinating research on a really wide range of topics related to Taiwan's democratization, its political system, and the island's role in the regional security infrastructure. So, Dr. Templeman, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. And just to jump right into it, what is it that brought you to study Taiwan? Uh, well, the short answer is I went to the PRC in Beijing first uh, and didn't have a great time there. It was my first time in Asia. And then when I visited Taiwan, uh, everything that I disliked about Beijing was much better in Taiwan. So it was an easy transition to make. It was easy to fall in love with Taiwan, uh, given that previous experience. Um, but the deeper answer, the more sophisticated one is uh, Taiwan raises the kinds of questions that uh all of the social sciences are built around basically any large issue in political science from uh, what are states, how do states survive in the interstate system to the rise and, and evolution of national identity to uh, transitions to democracy and consolidation of democracy um, to how to build successful democracy in a multicultural and multi-ethnic society. All of these are actually pretty relevant to Taiwan. And Taiwan, I think, has something unique to say to each of those questions. So um, it's I've I've been studying Taiwan for over 20 years and I, I never get bored. <laughs> I think it's there, there's enough for a lifetime of work. We we certainly agree. Um, and we're, we're again, we're excited to have you here to really share that kind of political science approach to this, uh, which I think is all too lacking in a lot of regards. But I think looking at Taiwan, I, it really occupies, a, as, you, as you mentioned, a unique position. I mean, it is a, it's unique in both East Asia and the world. But uh, since the 1990s, it's, it's really emerged as one of the world's strongest and the region's strongest, most vibrant multi-party democracies. It's conducted several peaceful transition of power. It's got a stable party system. But at the same time, its political system clearly faces enormous pressure from its neighbor across the strait, the PRC, which relentlessly and really increasingly batters Taiwan with its military posturing and movements, its dis and, dis and misinformation campaigns and its growing and increasingly complex efforts to subvert Taiwan's democracy. So given this difficult position Taiwan finds itself in, we're, we're really glad to have you here to shed some light on the current state, the, the health of Taiwan's democracy, as well as some of the threats it faces. What, what are these threats, both internal and external? So just to jump into it, you know, in reading your past writings, I've, I've been struck by the way you link Taiwan's really open democratic system with its current state of military readiness. And in particular, I've seen that you've argued that the growing openness of the past couple of decades of Taiwan's democracy you know, has led to a lot of strengths, but it's also resulted in perhaps a decrease in military readiness as a significant cuts to military budget, a scaling back of its mandatory conscription policies. So given the, the clear and growing threat from China, why is it that military spending and military support has become so unpopular in Taiwan? And what can the Tsai administration do as it looks to improve its military preparedness without significant public support? 
Yeah, so on the first question, I don't know that I have a compelling answer for you, uh, even though I've been thinking about this question for 15 years. Um, the, the best answer I can give you has three parts, I think. Uh, the first is actually the nature of the threat from the PRC to Taiwan. Um, unlike, say, the uh, Korean Peninsula conflict, no Taiwanese have died in the what we might characterize as the leftover vestige of the Chinese Civil War uh, in at least 40 years, right? Uh, and so the, the way that Taiwanese today conceive of the threat is not primarily as a military threat. They've had, um, you know, this behemoth across the strait, but threatening the island, but, but those threats come through a lot of different directions. And so the idea that, uh, you know, buying a few more planes or a few more tanks protect Taiwan is, is actually quite a hard sell for the average Taiwanese. Sure. Um, so I think that's uh, part of the part of it is the, the nature of the threat, I would say. Um, the, the second piece is um, one thing that's driven the decline in, in military budgets uh, is that it's not a vote winner, right? The legislature actually has to approve Taiwan's annual budget. And legislators, by and large, uh, don't make appeals to their voters based on how strong they are on, on uh, military issues. Um, and so uh, there's a partisan element to this as well. So uh, the KMT was traditionally the party that uh, uh, had, you know, party cadres within the military during the, the martial law era. And it's been much more closely associated, especially with the military brass. Uh, and so the DPP, as it uh, emerged and developed in the 1990s, was a a pretty strong critic of the military and very suspicious of the officer corps, especially and their their interests. Um, and so there wasn't a whole lot of expertise in the DPP when they first came to power on military and security issues. And they've had to slowly build that up over the last 20 years. Um, uh, and now it's the KMT actually that resists increases in military spending, in part because they see the DPP as, as kind of provocative, uh, trying to start some kind of uh, confrontation with, with Beijing. And so military spending kind of has taken on this partisan hue for a long time in a way that it doesn't in a lot of other countries. Um, and the third, and I think the most concerning to me, is that there's a kind of fatalism among the Taiwanese public about their own ability to affect the military balance across the street. The, the PRC spends over 25 times what Taiwan does now on its military. And that gap will continue to grow into the foreseeable future. Um, and so the attitude from a lot of Taiwanese is, well, you know, we've got the Americans, and the Americans can counter China. Uh, but what can we Taiwanese do that will matter at the margins? Even? Mm -hmm. Very little. And so why waste any of our money spending it on the military when it's not going to fundamentally affect uh, the ability to deter China? And I think that's uh, empirically false. I think Taiwan can do a lot, but I think that's a pretty widespread, uh, wide, widely held set of opinions in Taiwan. And it's a hard case to make that, no, Taiwan actually can do some materially important things to improve its own defense. Sure. Yeah, I think that's really interesting, um, the role that polarization and public opinion, whether it's fatalism or the, the hope that the United States will intervene plays in this, in this issue. Because I think often we look at Taiwan's democracy as one of its major strengths. Um, do you agree that Taiwan's democracy is one of its major strengths or is 
the the political system in Taiwan, leaving it more vulnerable? Um, I actually think Taiwan's democracy is uh, pretty robust uh, right now. Uh, certainly, in comparative perspective, it's held up much better in this uh, democratic recession that we've had over the last few years. Um, it it comes in top of the scales in a lot of uh, rankings of countries in Asia, usually just behind Japan and significantly ahead of Korea and well ahead of any country in Southeast Asia. So uh, at least in terms of uh, how robust, how vibrant um, Taiwan's democracy is, I think it, it does well and it's impressive uh, how it's done over the last two decades. Um, the effects on its ability to provide for its own security, I think, are mixed. Um, and here I'll turn to the IR literature, the international relations literature that we have in political science, which, which uh, tells us in general, there are tons of exceptions and caveats to this, but in general, democracies don't spend as much on their militaries as autocracies, and they don't prep as well for military conflict as autocracies. Um, but uh, if you do get into a fight, they do mobilize better overall than autocracies, and they do commit in a way that autocracies can't uh, to see the fight through. And so um, Taiwan, I think, is kind of caught in this, this position where it, it, it does seem to reflect that logic, where uh, there's a reluctance to uh, turn Taiwan into an armed camp again. I mean, Taiwan was basically a police state for several decades uh, in the 20th century. And uh, I don't think most Taiwanese want to return to that era. Um, and yet, trying to prepare Taiwan to uh, effectively and efficiently counter a threat from China um, requires, I think, a, a greater uh, degree of focus and, and a dedication of resources going to uh, to preparing for Taiwan's defense. So um, I think right now, again, because the nature of the threat is so vague and it's as much an economic and diplomatic and cultural threat as it is a, a hard power military one, um, it's hard to convince Taiwanese that uh, vastly increasing the defense budget makes a whole lot of sense. Um, there's one other thing I'll add to that, and that is that uh, the the Taiwanese military is a like like just about any military, a hidebound organization. It it's resistant to change, uh, and it's yet it's in a very different security environment today than it was say 25 or 30 years ago, where it had this enormous qualitative advantage over its adversary across the strait, and it could plan to go plane for plane ship for ship against the PLA. It can't do that anymore, and it never will be able to in the future. So there has to be a fundamental shift in thinking from this kind of symmetric mano uh, a mano fight to one that's asymmetric, that really uh, emphasizes Taiwan's defensive strategic advantages and focuses on buying lots of cheap stuff and deploying them, um, uh, diffusing them throughout the island, sure. distributing them in a way that makes it identify where they are. And I think uh, the, the military leadership that came up in the 80s and 90s that's now um, you know, at the head of all the, the armed forces is uh, it, it's difficult to make that case. They like to see you know, the m latest um, edition of you know, the, the fifth generation fighter, the, you know, the, the most advanced um, ships. Uh, they want to build new submarines, you know, very big, uh, expensive, 
high profile items um, that actually I don't think are the most effective way to increase someone's ability to deter an attack. Sure. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I mean, you, you talked a bit about the, the health of Taiwan's democracy there. You know, you talked that it is a, like you said, a, it's a robust democracy. It's, it's strong and it's weathered a lot of challenges, but continues to face a lot of challenges. So, you know, looking at this from a political science perspective and in light of all these threats that it faces, you know, do you, do you see aspects of the Taiwan's political system that worry you? I mean, do you see aspects that show that Chinese efforts to undermine it or internal efforts to undermine it have been effective at all? Um, I've actually been pleasantly surprised by how well Taiwan has resisted those efforts. Mm -hmm. And I think most people coming to this issue for the first time who don't focus on Taiwan, but who are familiar with, say, Russian influence uh, and and monkeying around in U.S. elections or in Europe uh, or in the Baltics, um, they, they come to Taiwan with the expectation that the Chinese are just eating the Taiwanese lunch. And uh, they're usually pleasantly surprised by how little impact what the Chinese are doing ultimately has on voting outcomes, at least, uh, elections. Uh, so um, I, I think I'm, I'm less concerned. It's still a worry, but I'm less concerned about the ability of the CCP to, uh, to interfere in Taiwan's domestic uh, elections and campaigns uh, than I was, say, two or three years ago. Sure. Um, what does worry me, me a bit, and this is a worry that's common to a lot of fairly young democracies, is that Taiwan's got pockets of real institutional strength in its democracy, but some serious pockets of weakness as well. And so uh, one I'll mention, because it's on my mind, because we did an event on this yesterday, is Taiwan's uh, media environment. Um, Taiwan has uh, a, a, a well-deserved reputation as having uh, you know, wide open media freedom. You can say whatever you want online, on the air, in print. Uh, you can start new stations. You can start new papers and magazines. Um, it's, uh, it's a very kind of laissez-faire place in terms of media freedom. Um, but uh, that also in this era of just rampant disinformation and influence operations presents a considerable vulnerability. And uh, I worry that Taiwan's uh, traditional institutions that regulate the media space are not up to the challenge of pushing back against that threat. Um, and so I think there's a, there's a need to kind of strengthen some of these pockets of weakness in Taiwan's democratic institutions. Uh, and, and that's one. So the National Communications Commission, for instance, is, is kind of on the hot seat right now for denying a, um, denying a license renewal to uh, a pro-China television station. And that actually raises some really deep fundamental questions about whether they should do that, uh, what's the best way to counter um, a station that is expressing a view that a lot of Taiwanese hold, even if it's um, one that may be threatening to the island. So, um, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, so that's one example. I could go on. But let me pause there. <laughs> yeah, I think I think in terms of the role that media plays in Taiwan's democracy is is really important. And I think one place recently where we've seen uh, the power of media in shaping public opinion and and some of these things is in Taiwan's direct democracy um, pursuits, mm -hmm. whether it's recall votes or uh, referendum votes. 
And I think recently we've seen, you know, the the referendums take on a deeper meaning with some of the recent protests around the lifting of restrictions on the U.S. pork and beef imports. Um, and, and now there are talks that there will be a referendum on whether or not um, the lifting of the restrictions will hold. And so I'm wondering, is do you see this as an issue, specifically the U.S. pork, pork and beef issue, as something that should be handled through referendums? Um, and what do you think that the outcome of this referendum, should it should it go through, will have on the U.S.-Taiwan relationship? Mm. Um. I wish it weren't being handled through a referendum. I wish Taiwan didn't have a referendum system, frankly. Um, I think this is a, I was talking about pockets of weakness. I think this is another weakness that uh, the DPP, you know, passed an amendment to the Referendum Act, making this, make, making this kind of referendum possible. And so they have only themselves to blame for what we're now seeing, which is kind of referendum uh, enthusiasm gone wild here. Um, and yeah, so I think if the if the referendum to uh, reverse the Thai decision to allow U.S. pork uh, with the additive rectopamine, if that referendum passes, I think it will cause a real problem in the U.S.-Taiwan uh, conversations about a bilateral trade agreement, at least. It could torpedo those talks completely, um, and I think that would be a very bad outcome for both sides. Um, um, more generally, uh, I just I I kind of have a philosophical problem with the idea of referendums as a way to decide complex policy issues that involve a lot of trade-offs. Um, there, uh, referendums. You know, I live in a state, California, that has an initiative system that gets heavily used each election, and so we often present the voters with fifteen or twenty different ballot measures many of which are dealing with really technical issues about whether you should have this specific healthcare fund set up for long-term care, or whether you should you know, uh, regulate emissions from power plants in a certain way. And you know, the vast majority of voters don't have this knowledge. And the whole reason we elect representatives is to do this work for us, to figure this stuff out. Um, mm -hmm. And so in the absence of that, if you throw it to the voters, then they start to rely on partisan cues. Uh, and so very quickly, a referendum about U.S. beef and pork is going to take on a very partisan element to it. And so the DPP will try to mobilize their side in favor and the KMT will mobilize their side against. And if it's a pro-KMT year like it was in 2018, all the referendums the KMT uh, opposes will fail and the ones they support pass or vice versa. And so that, that voters aren't really, I think, considering the merits of the referendums mm -hmm. very much, um, at least so far in Taiwan. So, um, I really think the referendum act. If, it, you know, if I could have my way, I would. I would revert to the situation they had before 2017. Sure. I mean, to build on that a little bit, and to to follow up with something that has also become incredibly partisan in Taiwan's political system, is the the recent increase in in recall elections, as, as Daniel mentioned, yeah. uh, that yeah. have become very partisan and very revenge based. It seems. Um, yeah. Looking at them from your perspective, I mean, I, I suspect I can guess where you go with this, but uh, do, do you see these recalls as, you know, a beneficial element of Taiwan's democracy or a, a potential threat? Yeah, so uh, short answer is they're a threat. Um, there is, I mean, there's a legitimate reason to have a recall mechanism, and that is if you have an elected official in office, there's no other way to get them out if they do something that is just egregiously 
uh, illegal or corrupt or outrageous, um, other than actually charging them with a crime. And so, um, you know, it's a, it's an important safety valve to have, but um, the lowering of the referendum, referendum threshold to the point where it's at now means that uh, both political camps can just mobilize their core supporters and they cross that threshold um, to be able to hold a referendum and, or sorry, to be able to hold a recall election. And um, that to me suggests it's too low. You, you want to reserve this for the the really unusual circumstance where you have somebody who has just completely lost his mind or is completely outrageous and is doing a lot of damage to his constituency or to his county or to the, or to the country by remaining in office. And you need to have a, a kind of bipartisan or multi-party consensus that that person needs to leave office um, in order for this to pass. And so I think a high threshold for collecting signatures and a high threshold for uh, approving a recall is actually important. Generally speaking, politicians are going to do unpopular things when they're in office, and that's okay. We want them to do unpopular things if they think they have more information than the voters. Um, and voters should be able to see how that plays out over the next few years, and then at, at regular intervals, they can weigh in on whether they think uh, the, the politicians in power have done the right thing or not. Um, but uh, the idea that we recall you for every little unpopular decision you have made, every unpopular vote you have cast in the LY is just um, you're basically hamstringing the entire system and you're, you're sending it towards paralysis. Yeah, um, I couldn't agree more with that. Um, I was I think we should switch gears and talk about a different form of Taiwan or a different aspect of Taiwan's democracy, which is something you've written extensively about which is uh, the party system in Taiwan. And specifically, um, you've talked a lot about how the KMT must reinvent themselves you know, following the 2020 elections. Um, and specifically, you talked about how they should reinvent themselves in order to have what you call a long-term sustainable future. Um, it's now 2021, and the KMT is holding its chairmanship elections in July. Um, and I'm wondering if you think that the KMT is taking the right steps to reinvent itself and if not, and the KMT suffers electorally for not reinventing itself, what does the future of the party system in Taiwan look like? Will it become, say, more fractionalized, or will we see a return to a one-party state in Taiwan? Like, where do you see this going? Yeah, an excellent set of questions. Um, there's a lot to tackle there. Um, let me start with the KMT piece first. Um, the the long-term challenge for the KMT is that they don't win many votes under from the under 40 age group. Um, in fact, now we're at it's more like under 45, I think. Um, and so they're, they're still significant players in the party system. They still, for instance, control a majority of the local county executives and mayors, right? That's a, we often overlook this, but the KMT is quite strong at the local level right now. Um, uh, so I don't think they're doomed by any means, but they do have to develop uh, greater appeal to younger voters if they want to survive over the long term. Eventually, their electorate, their their supporters are going to age out, uh, to use a euphemism. <laughs> um, and uh, so, yes, I think at some point they do have to they have to find the kind of combination of identity and policy appeals that makes them more palatable to younger voters in Taiwan. Um, Part of doing that is simply changing the face of the party. 
And I think they, the party did a good thing by putting Jiang Qichun, uh, Johnny Jiang, the current chairman, in that position. You know, he's a young, uh, handsome, fairly charismatic leader. Uh, he's not part of the old guard that's been fighting over spoils for 30 years within the party. And uh, so he does just in his own person, kind of represent a break with the old style of politics for the KMT. Um, he's also a member of the legislature, and that's where, uh, you know, he won a competitive district in Taichung City. Um, he's uh, kind of built up some, some policy expertise then because of that, and he's not involved in these um, kind of intra-party fights as much, or at least he, he what didn't used to be before he became chairman. And so that's helpful too. Um, the, the problem that KMT faces right now, I think, is that the old guard's still around and they still want to uh, throw their weight around. Um, mm -hmm. I, you know, I don't want to, <laughs> I need to be careful about who I criticize here, but um, I do think, uh, for instance, Ma Yingzhou is still playing uh, a significant role and has, has a very kind of public, um, has taken very public stances on what the party should do and, and has criticized the, the Tsai Ing-wen government. And that's, that's a choice that he made to, con rather than to be a kind of elder statesman in a post-partisan role in Taiwan, he's decided to kind of return to partisan politics in his retirement. So uh, I think that's actually a bit of a problem for the KMT. Ma represents this older style of politics. Um, and so um, I, I think it's too soon to tell. I think uh, I wouldn't count the KMT out in 2022. I wouldn't count them out in 2024. I think they will be an underdog, but with the right candidate, they could still win the 2024 presidential election. And um, the the bigger issue is what happens in, say, 10 or 15 years um, when their uh, core supporters are a smaller and smaller share of the total electorate. Um, and they need to be working on that right now. Sure. Well, to take a step back a little bit, I'd, I'd like to step way back, actually, and take a look at democracy as a whole in the region. You know, in early 2020, you wrote a, a really excellent brief for the Atlantic Council on the state of democracy in Asia. And what followed in 2020 was, shall we say, a turbulent year for, for democracies, for, for everything. Uh, we saw a change of administrations in the U.S., elections in Taiwan, Indonesia, Mongolia, a ongoing coup in Myanmar and a really large issue about crackdowns of human rights, particularly in Hong Kong under COVID-19 restrictions. So as we look into 2021, as we start this new year, where is democracy in Asia now? And Taiwan as this, you know, island of democracy amidst a sea of Chinese authoritarianism, you know, what role can Taiwan play in this? And in, to use a term you've called provocative, democracy promotion in Asia. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so uh, to, to, long story short, democracy in Asia is struggling mm -hmm. like it is in most of the rest of the world right now. Um, Asia is not immune to these trends. I think part of what's driving the democratic downturn is the rise of China. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, you know, in each country, we can kind of argue about how much the China factor matters. But overall, the environment... Uh, the U.S. is not the dominant player economically in the region anymore. Mm -hmm. And that means that we have ultimately less leverage over a lot of these countries um, than we used to. Um, and that, and we're not exactly a democratic paragon these <laughs> days either. We have our own serious uh, internal democratic problems. And so 
the, the kind of macro environment uh, has become a lot less hospitable to democratic transitions and consolidations than it was 15 or 20 years ago. Um, so I'm, in the short run, I'm, I'm uh, not depressed or despondent, but I'm, I'm you know, it's, it's not a great story. Sure. Um, uh, a couple cases you didn't mention, actually, the Philippines is really depressing right now. Um, and India also. India is huge. Sure. It's, uh, you know, the, the largest, what we used to call the third world is the largest uh, longstanding democracy there. And they've seen a really sharp decline along in multiple indices by multiple organizations, ranking countries on democracy around the world. There, it doesn't matter who's doing it. They've seen a sharp decline in in uh, freedom of expression, freedom of the press, uh, academic freedom, um, partisan manipulation of the electoral commission, partisan manipulation of the legal system. Um, everything there is uh, trending in the wrong direction. Um, and that's, I mean, India is a big influential place as well. And so if we see a significant downturn there, then like who are the democratic advocates in the region? It's not clear to me anymore. There's nobody really except, you know, the, the Australia, I guess, is the leader. Um, so, yeah, so Taiwan looks increasingly exceptional. Uh, if we think of this as a kind of Indo-Pacific region rather than just Northeast Asia. Um, so Taiwan does have some, I think, experience and uh, resources to offer countries, you know, not India, but but some of the smaller countries in the region that are struggling with some of these issues. Um, uh, because it was once... a a police state, I called it mm -hmm. earlier. Uh, it was under martial law for what, 37 years, 38 years. Um, and uh, it transitioned out of that and has done quite well since. So, um, so the first is just drawing on Taiwan's experience. Another aspect is that Taiwan, uh, it, the U.S. as a kind of promoter of democracy around the world has a, a, a bit of a there's a bit of a tainted image, I guess, um, because of uh, our, our past forays, especially into the Middle East, and kind of trying to brand the invasion of Iraq as a democracy promotion exercise. And, and that's fading a little bit, but I still worry that the U.S. is not really the best position to say, you know, everybody else needs to improve their democracies <laughs> when, when we ourselves are struggling. And Taiwan, so Taiwan, as an alternative voice that's not the U.S., can actually provide some, uh, some quiet support for, uh, for democracy promotion in the region as well. And the third thing I'd say here is I'd break democracy promotion down into its constituent parts. One is having robust civil society. Another is having freedom of the press and uh, academic freedom. And so Taiwan, because it's not, you know, it's not recognized by most of these countries. So it, it, it's not operating at a kind of formal diplomatic level, mm -hmm. but it can operate at the people to people and enterprise to enterprise level to try to deepen and institutionalize uh, best practices and rule of law, uh, labor rights, academic freedom, and so on and so forth. And so I think there are some opportunities there for Taiwan to you know, quietly work uh, to to hold the wall <laughs> against this, uh, what, what looks like an increasingly accelerating democratic recession. Well, that's a, a bit of a, a pessimistic end to a, a great interview, but uh, <laughs> thank you again, Dr. Timmelman, for giving us such a comprehensive overview of 
Taiwan's unique political situation, the challenges it faces, and the the tactics it's taking to to address them. And you know, I think it's so important right now, amid all these discussions that are all worthy of being had of cross rate balances of power and military readiness and hard security. I think it's easy to overlook the the really huge role that Taiwan's domestic political system plays in shaping its policy. And I, I think you've done a great job of really taking a great political science lens of that and explaining it. So thank you again for joining us. And we, we've loved having you on. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Right. Well, thank you to all our listeners for joining us for another episode of GTI Insights. Thank you also to the great staff and interns at GTI for all their help with every step producing this podcast. And finally, thank you to Joe Ross and his band Rewindma for providing the music for our podcast. If you're interested in learning more about GTI, be sure to check out our website at globaltaiwan.org where you can find information about our Global Taiwan Brief, our frequent public seminars, and all of our other programs. You can also listen to more episodes of GTI Insights on Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Until next time, this has been GTI Insights.